Hello, and welcome to Breadcrumbs, a podcast brought to you by Trace Labs. It's our mission here to facilitate OSINT for everyone. We'll be hearing from industry experts, community leaders, and everyday people about the tools, topics, and techniques that will make your OSINT collection better. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Breadcrumbs. I'm joined today by John Strand, owner of Black Hills Information Security. John, how's it going? Doing very well, and yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, I, I used to do a pretty detailed intro of the guests, and then I realized this is an OSINT podcast, and by me just telling them, up, exactly, like I'm just creating See, lazy investigators. But that but that, that can be a problem, right? Because if you, if you actually do OSINT on John Strand, um, a number of people that have taken my classes, they know this in painful levels of detail. Um, there's another John Strand that's, almost the exact same age as I am and lived in Denver at the same time. He was in a band like I was, his band was Celeste and it was garbage and mine was Parker needs silence and we rocked proper. But the biggest problem with that John Strand, other than the fact that he's a male model, which is look at the pictures, they're terrifying. Um, but he was actually part of the Capitol riots and you talk about like OSINT and stuff. He took lots of selfies and posted it and he actually ended up in prison. So if anybody, is listening to this right now, just to make it very clear, I have never been at any point a male model. So I need to make that like very clear, so. Okay, well, I mean, I guess that was the episode. You know, we had one yeah, goal. there we go. Now everyone's <laughs> like, what's the difference between these two? They look like twins, so. <laughs> awesome. And I, I think that's probably just a great springboard into OSINT in general. Um, just because a name matches doesn't mean that's a hit. It just means you matched a name or an email. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just a, a a green dot in an app or like a hit on an app does not equate to attribution. So, No, it really doesn't. I mean, I, I think that that's a good point. And we were talking a little bit before, a lot of people that are getting involved in OSINT, that's one of the biggest rookie mistakes, Right is they're always looking for that Hollywood moment where they're like, ah, this guy, he was at the Capitol and he did this, he did this, he did this. And then they shout it out to all their friends. They go on social media and then they find out that they screwed up. Uh, so you really do need to treat this, treat this fire with care whenever you start doing it, because it is something that can have repercussions if you get it wrong. So, so much we could talk about and so little time. Most of our episodes and most of the work we do at Trace Labs revolves around people OSINT, social mm -hmm. media, Facebook, Twitter, um, TikTok, things like that. But your business uses OSINT not in a completely different way, but sort of looks at a different part of OSINT or a different side of the OSINT coin. Um, do you want to talk about what Black Hills does and just how OSINT fits into maybe your daily routine mm -hmm. or a pen test? Well, you know, and this is this is something that's really important because there are certain things and there are certain lines that you generally don't want to cross when you're in a pen test, right? And you'll talk to some red teamers and they will say, anything's on the table. I'm going to use anything against the environment to get in. Those people are a-holes. Don't party with them. And, and the reason why I say that is because there's always going to be these lines that you generally don't want to cross. 
And there's a variety of reasons, why right? It can be a moral reason. It can be a practical reason. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Um, so if you're doing recon and you're trying to break into an organization, there's some things I think that can be on the table, right? Like if I go to TransUnion and I pull down a background investigation and for five bucks, you can get someone's social security number, you can get their phone numbers, their personal email addresses, every single loan that person has, every place that person has lived. And people are like, what's the value of my privacy? The value of your privacy is a five dollar um, when you boil it right down. Now, some of that we could absolutely use in an engagement, right? Like if I'm trying to create a highly targeted spear phishing campaign, and I can say, you've got a bank loan for your house through Bank of America, I can literally use that as a ruse to get you to click a link. Now, just for that basic one, there's a bunch of problems with that. And the first problem is one, it's stupid easy to do. But the other problem is you have customers that start to feel really uncomfortable with the fact that you're able to pull that information. You basically become the messenger that gets shot. And then you have to answer questions like, how did you get this information? Um, how much was this information? And then rather than looking at it as a systematic training problem, they look at it as we can shoot the messenger and then this problem will go away. Because you know, many times, you know, Google talks about the creepy line and when you're pen testing, you may have situations where you cross that creepy line and really start to make people uncomfortable. And that works counterproductive to what you're trying to do, which most pen tests is educational. You're trying to illuminate and educate people through actual attack scenarios. So sometimes we get customers that are all cool with that and that's fine, but you wanna make sure that you get that clearly defined up front. And then you have things that you would never use in a pen test. And once again, I've talked to red teamers in the past and they're like, nothing's off the table. And once again, I think that that's garbage. So for example, let's say that you're doing a pen test and you find out that one of the people you're going after was part of the Ashley Madison dump, right? Or you think that they were. Now that was an old dump from years ago, right? That's 2015, but that's still valid data possibly for the people that you're going after. How would you use that, right? You know, an attacker may try to use that for an extortion perspective, but as a red team and a pen test, you're gonna not do that. Um, we had an engagement a long time ago. There was a website called Blacklisted Johns. I don't know if you've heard of that, Tom. Have you heard of that site? No. I think it's down now. But Blacklisted Johns was a website where um, uh, sex workers could go in and they could post information about their customers, specifically customers that were abusive, they didn't pay and they didn't do certain things. And one of the people that we were going after, um, we found out was on Blacklisted Johns and the, um, the sex worker had posted his credit card, a picture of his credit card, picture of his driver's license, because he left that all in the room with her when he went and took a shower. And then he, she basically wrote up this long story about how he was abusive. Now that's horrible, right? But would you ever use that in a pen test? Hell no, like there's no way you would ever use those things. So you have these areas of OSINT where you can start tripping into things that start to become problematic. So you're naturally going to create these barriers and these lines that you will not cross as part of your craft. Now, if you're going after somebody for law enforcement, game on, right? Um, you're gonna try to find as much as you can about a suspect, or if you're working with like Marshall's technical operations group, somebody that is not a suspect, but is actually a convict that's out on the run, 
your, your game and your methodologies, methodologies change. You'll still use a lot of the same techniques, but there's going to be some self-regulation in that as well. Interesting. So the purpose of, well, of, of a pen test is obviously educational. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not just for fun. Um, usually that's normally yeah. illegal. <laughs> um, yeah. Under normal so, circumstances, you yes. go to jail without yes, permission. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Um, but so the point is education and I definitely understand what you're saying. Like certain pieces of information are going to be off the table and whether that's d d like defined in the actual scope or just a personal rule. Like I just don't go after this or if I find it, I don't bring it up. Mm -hmm. um, how much of that is in the delivery? You know, so you, you'd mentioned you are the messenger that gets shot. How much of that comes down to how the message was delivered? Um, I, I guess like I'm just trying to imagine some wiggle room where if you presented some of that information in an educational context, or I guess with context, it might be received better. Have you ever seen that? Um, so it depends, right? It, it definitely depends on the data. Like, you know, if I'm using the example of like Ashley Madison or another porn website and a breach associated with it, there's literally no good way to bring that from an educational perspective, like none whatsoever. Um, so an example would be for a while, Punk Spider, um, I don't know if it was a bug, but for a while, Punk Spider, anytime you were doing recon, um, it would basically bring back and say that almost every single one of the users you were going after had a Pornhub account. Now at BHIS, as soon as we see a company has like 5,000 people that apparently all have Pornhub accounts, we know there's something wrong with the tool. So we kind of ignore that, right? We're just going to be like, that's not a big deal. Well, we have a policy where we give the raw data from scanning and what we do to the customer directly, okay? And in that situation, we didn't even mention any of that in the report. We didn't talk about it in the debrief. We just didn't bring it up. But then the customer was going through that data and then they found it. And then it created this huge kind of kerfluffle on the customer side and over on us. And there was lots of questions like, why did it do this? And we're like, that's, you know, we, we basically researched it. Uh, Sally was the one that was doing the test. And we found out it was a false positive. We ignored it. And it was like, are you sure? Um, and it, it, it really created problems and consternation on the part of the customer. So it ultimately becomes a judgment call. Um, but there are going to be certain things like sex and religion. Like religion is another example. Let's say that you're doing an assessment and you find out that somebody at that organization is deeply, devoutly religious, maybe even to a point that makes you as the tester uncomfortable. Are you going to bring that up and try to create it as a learning moment for that company? Hell no, you're not going to touch it. Um, so there are these certain like third rails that you stay away from um, it, at all costs, just because there's very little opportunity for it to actually become an insightful, wonderful conversation dealing in sexuality or in religion or maybe even politics. Um, even though I have used those things in engagements in the past, and it almost never goes well, like it, it just doesn't. Um, and ultimately, if we go back to education, what's the lesson that you learn from that? Right. I, I think that the lesson will get muddled very, very, very quickly. 
um, if you start getting into those particular areas, because it's it's going to be so sticky that it's going to stick to religion, to politics, to sexuality, to all these different things. I had a customer that was really into S&M and bondage and things like that. Um, fun, fun fact about that particular customer. Um, he actually came up to me at a SANS conference while I was teaching in Baltimore. And uh, he, right before lunch, he's like, hey, do some research on me. And he wanted me to do it in front of the entire class, right? So I'm like, no, man, I'm not going to do that in front of the class. I'll do it at lunch and then I'll get back to you. Sure as hell, he was really into some very shocking clubs in the local area. And that would have been something that would have been on display to 100 students. Now, whether or not that's what he wanted is a point of debate. But once again, whenever we're getting into that, like what possible value does that have to the test? And once again, there's people that will say, well, they could use it for extortion. They could use it for this. They could use it for that. You're right. But if you bring that up, there's going to be so much more damage and fighting. So what I've done in the past is if I find something on a particular individual, um, and particularly before COVID times, if I had to, I would put some of that information in a manila envelope and try to talk to that person directly and say, look, this may or may not be you, but these are some things that are available online that I think you should be aware of. I want nothing. And if you want to talk to me about it, we can. That tends to work out a little bit better, but it's not something you ever want to put into a report that gets sent to dozens of people um, at a company because that just won't stay in the box. I gave an entire conference talk about this subject, but whether it's pen testing or just just OSIT investigation for your friends and family, um, <laughs> we do have a responsibility for how that information is used. Mm -hmm. So, And sometimes can, that responsibility tells us don't use it. Absolutely. So as a pen tester, you know, you might not like it, but someone's going to act on this information that you're giving them and you have to make a call before they receive that information. Mm -hmm. Am I okay with how I think this is going to play out? Or, you know, can, can I do anything to maybe make this a more neutral reception? And, mm -hmm. and to, to your example, like letting someone's boss know that they're into you know, S&M really does nothing for their security infrastructure or, or, or even if it does, it would do much more harm than it would good. Yeah. So agreed, agreed yeah. for sure. And, and you got to take that balance. And I've talked to pen testers and people in the community where they're like, it's not my job. I, I you know, if they did that and it's a problem, that's their problem. And I, I think that we can be a little bit more responsible as, as an industry than that. I really do. Yes. So in my experience, like, oh, like OSINT is fun, but I, I, I think that getting into OSINT can open up people's eyes to this entire industry, this entire security landscape that they might not have known existed. Um, maybe they just do a trace lab CTF, or maybe they just see a video on YouTube or a documentary on, on Netflix and like, oh, hey, I kind of do that already. That's cool. Oh, there's this entire security landscape. Um, I feel like OSINT can be a really interesting gateway into the, the security community. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but then also hear about yeah. the large brick wall you immediately hit upon entering that community, um, just in the form of like, oh God, where do I go now? Well, okay. So if anybody ever feels that way in security, 
I always say that there's no straight roads to get here and there sure are no straight roads when you arrive, right? It, it's not like there's a path. Like if you're talking to somebody that's an engineer, you're like, tell me about how you got into engineering. Well, I did my undergrad at, oh, okay, cool. And then I took my EIT, my PE exam. Okay, and then I worked in an engineering firm for five, six years. It's like very well-defined paths. Whereas if you talk to some people, I honestly don't even know which of my employees at BHIS have college degrees or even graduated from high school. I just don't. I don't care, right? A lot of them have tons of experience and they presented at cons and I've hung out with them. I know them. So I don't need to like have that type of defined pathway to get here. And as you know, with a lot of like, like degrees, not all universities, but a tremendous number of the universities are garbage whenever it comes to information security. Like they sit down, they're like, we're going to take the CISSP, CBK, and we're going to build our degree around that. It's like, oh my God, no, don't do that. Right. But once again, that doesn't exist. So I think the allure of OSINT is twofold. I think the first allure is there's a perception that it is easy, right? So whenever you look at uh, like movies, and I think, you know, Mr. Robot is a great example, right? He kind of walks through, this is how he breaks into places. You realize the more you know about a target, be it an individual or an organization, the higher the likelihood is that you're going to be successful in actually attacking that particular uh, asset right? And it looks easy from the outside because we're doing a bunch of Google searches. We're going to a bunch of websites. We're learning all this stuff. And it doesn't involve any coding. There's no command line. There's, there's nothing to it on the surface. But that also kind of gets to the problem of OSINT, where if that's all you believe there is, oh my word, it gets so much more complicated and in-depth and nuanced much faster if you do learn how to code, because if you're looking at OSINT, you're looking at ASNs and you have no idea what, what BGP is or how routing works, that may not be interesting to you. But if you actually understand the technical underpinnings, all of a sudden that may have additional, like that's a clue that opens up other doors to do additional research. Like if we have an ASN for a particular target organization, are there any other, are there any other, uh, hosts on that network that may have insecurities and in like patching or something like that. We can use Shodan to do net modifiers, to do searches for different systems around that specific area. It, and that is another really attractive thing for OSINT is OSINT touches on email, right? So you're gonna learn about SMTP headers, right? It touches on networking. We talk about ASNs, IP addresses, geolocation. It touches on people. Um, in the community as a whole, as far as human beings. It's this amazing nexus between us as humans and the technology that we use every day. And I think that for a lot of people, it's this brave new world and this frontier where you actually see how the world works. And that's very attractive. But like you said, the wall is there. For a lot of people, whenever they hit that wall, it's basically realizing this goes much, much, much deeper than they knew. And there's a lot of technologies that they need to learn. And you have two groups of people. You either have people that embrace that and dive into it and try to learn scripting and try to learn how the tools work and start doing pull requests for tools like Recon NG and stuff. Or you have people that say, I just do OSINT. I don't do anything technical. And they kind of purposely stop their career growth at that point. 
So I'd caution people, don't stop. There's so much more that you can do. And what's cool is if you're an OSINT professional, you're really learning how these two things interrelate with each other. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I try to get new people to the to our community to realize. Like, if you like OSINT, ask yourself what you like about it. Like, what about this is enjoyable? And I guess I'll, I'll flip that over to the question that always comes up. How do I get a job in OSINT? Um, that's actually that, that well, oh, I was just going to say that's a brilliant question. Yeah, go well, ahead. And like the way I look at it is that's kind of like saying, how do I get a job in problem solving? Like, how do <laughs> I get a job in critical thinking? Like these are important skills that you're going to use at a job, but they're not necessarily an entire career outside of, you know, you actually do work in the intelligence community, whether that's government or private sector. Um, yep. And to, to if, if, if I can get that light bulb to go off, like, oh, okay, like I really enjoy investigations. I enjoy putting these pieces together or I enjoy this piece of it. Okay, now let's dive down that rabbit hole. And if, if I can get that light bulb to turn on, um, I typically see people just take it and run with it. No, and, and, and I think that that's great. And like, like we were talking about, that's what makes it the gateway drug for so many things to get involved. But if you're looking for a career, right, there's careers in law enforcement, right? It, not just like the FBI, but there's tons of different law enforcement agencies where developing OSINT for investigations is, is, is huge, right? And a lot of law enforcement personnel, they don't quite understand some of these things. So if you want to get seen, Basically, get good at OSINT and then go do presentations at InfraGuard, right? You know, you got to put yourself in a place where you can be seen by law enforcement agencies like HTCIA and InfraGuard and things like that. Get seen in doing this. And you'll be surprised because you're going to have banks. Like I know a lot of large banks, they have entire teams that are doing OSINT against their company constantly looking for different data leakages. That's a real job in this industry. Law enforcement is a real job in this industry. Working with law offices where you're actually doing investigations, a great example would be mergers and acquisitions due diligence, right? If you're working for a law firm, we do this as part of our offerings at BHIS. If you're a company and you're gonna acquire another company, wouldn't you like to know kind of what some of the background is for some of the principals at that company? Do they have a criminal record? What does that criminal record possibly entail? How many other businesses have they started? What's the success or failure for those businesses? So there's this, there's this huge amount of options that you can do, but it almost is like you're making your own scene at that point. So like I said, I recommend getting good at it, doing InfraGuard presentations, HTCIA con uh, conferences, and really trying to get out in the community and kind of showcase. And it's this way that you're kind of peacocking for all the people that are interested in this in these fields to see you and recognize you as a professional and that's a great way to get a job doing this for realsies yeah and i i think that can be difficult for a lot of people is you do have to get noticed generally speaking you do have to be a mm -hmm. somebody and and be being a somebody doesn't mean be a rock star it doesn't mean have a hundred thousand people following you on twitter it just means mm -hmm you know, talking at cons. It means, you know, have a GitHub repo going, even if it's not code, just curate interesting things you found for other people and then you're the curator. Well, and Tom, I think that's a good point. How many times do you end up finding like 
a curated list of OSINT resources on GitHub that's just amazing. And you find tools that you've never seen before. That individual may not have coded a single thing in their entire lives, but if that person's talking at a con, you want to listen to that person. And that's that's such a great point. You don't have to be super technical to get started. You should be aspiring to get technical. Always, always try to get technical. But you know, you don't have to start there necessarily. Yeah. And I think I said this on a live stream once. You know, people are always asking, how do I get more involved in the community? Well, just get more involved. Just get more involved. <laughs> well, that, that gets to the problem, right? Like where you get people that are like, I want to get into OSINT. What's a book I should read? It, 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 there's some books that'll help you, but by and large, you got to kind of dig on your own, right? And you're always looking for people. Like for me with BHIS, we just hired like five, six testers um, and uh, I think three SOC people. But the skill that I'm looking for is I don't care what certs you have. I just don't. I don't care if you have a college degree. But when you have somebody that's like, you know, you know, trace lab CTF, or they have something like hack the box. If they have something like SANS, they put on um, holiday hack challenges. And you have somebody that's actively out there and doing these things, that's someone that I want working for me. And other companies will recognize that too as well. The thing I know you and Black Hills the most for is none of your security work. You know, oh, no idea, no idea <laughs> what, what y'all even do there. Uh -huh. Um, but I do know you for your community outreach, for your education. I'm just always just so blown away by the stuff that you, Jason Blanchard, just anyone from Black Hills is always putting out there, just trying to make people better at the craft, get them excited about doing it, try to knock down some of those brick walls I was mentioning mm -hmm. earlier, just at a high level. Do you want to talk through your philosophy there? So every once in a while, you'll see our employees wearing a shirt that says Black Hills Information Security proudly sucking at capitalism. And that particular shirt is interesting because it immediately enrages some people. Um, they're like, how dare you be a socialist? Socialism has killed lots and lots and lots of people. I'm like, nowhere did I defend socialism in this shirt. Um, but the reason why we say that, and on the back, it lists all of our free tools that we release to the community. Um, so we've got like Rita and Mail Sniper, Cred Sniper, Cred King. We got all these different tools that we've released um, over the years. And it, it's kind of weird because if you get into business, you're going to have these people in the business community that have watched, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street or swimming with shark and all this garbage. And you have the entire industry kind of move and march along the same tired path of we're going to go to Gartner and we're going to have a booth and then we're going to pay off a bunch of Gartner analysts. And then we're going to go to DEF CON or not DEF CON, but like we're going to do Black Hat. We're going to have a booth and we're going to throw a party and we're going to spend thousands of dollars on this party. And that's, that's how we've got to do things. And everyone just kind of does it the same way because that's the way that they did it. So I hate that crap. I don't like it. Like I don't like VC funding. I don't like any of that garbage. And what I started out with, with Security Weekly is, you know, Paul and Larry and like that whole team was all about doing tech segments and free stuff for the community. And that really became a drug for me in the fact that I kept on doing that in YouTube videos and in, in webcasts and all kinds of stuff. And I found out that I could teach for something like the SANS Institute, which was great. I mean, it's great training, super expensive, and it's not accessible to a huge percentage of the population. But if I ended up doing free webcasts, 
then all of a sudden we had more people coming to our free webcasts and we had more work coming in to, to BHIS. So we found that thread. It's like, if I do things for free, then I tend to get more work and I tend to attract better pen testers. And I just kept pulling on that thread. So my wife and I are like all about this, right? So we started doing tons and tons and tons of webcasts and the webcast just continued to explode because you don't come onto a webcast and have somebody say, this webcast is brought to you by whatever security company and they get 15 minutes of time to waste talking about other products, best of breed or whatever garbage, like actually teach people something. And then it kind of evolved into Wild West Hacking Fest and the con that we do there. And then um, like our training. And we do have paid training because I have people that are instructors and they have to feed their families. And it's a lot of work to put together classes, but we try to make it so the cost is accessible for people. Where if somebody is sitting around washing dishes or they're working you know, in a, in a used car lot or they're a dispatch director for a trucking company. And these are all people that have contacted me after the fact that's something they can afford. And if you look at computer security, there's this huge gate to get into security where we have, some people say we have a million unfilled jobs in security. I don't know if I agree with that number. It might be a little large, but I agree that there's a lot of open positions, but everybody wants unicorns, right? They want somebody that has four SAN certs. They have their OSCP, they have their CISSP, and they don't want to settle for anything less than that. And yet you have thousands and thousands of people that are unemployed or underemployed that are on the outside looking in in this industry and desperate to try to find a way to get in. And we can't tell these people, go over here and take this thousands and thousands of dollars training to get into the industry, because that's crap. And it's basically excluding large segments of the population. And we're missing some amazing people for the opportunities to come in. So what we did is we tried this thing with Chris Brenton, um, who's a, a retired SANS instructor like me, where we did a free network threat hunting class and we got 5,000 people to show up. 5,000, we actually broke the freaking platform that we were on, like it couldn't handle it. And the salespeople were like, well, we didn't think you would actually show up with 5,000 people live, who the hell does that? Go to webinar, we've broken it multiple times because it caps out at 3,000 and it just gives up the ghost because we're giving things away that are valuable. So now we do the pay what you can training. For me, all my classes are pay what you can. And my goal for pay what you can was, I wanna like just do this because I'm doing fine with BHIS. We proudly suck at capitalism because we give things away for free, but we're actually doing very well. And we did this class and it just absolutely destroyed registrations. Like we actually had to cut it off and open up another section. And what was shocking is there was people that had this attitude of, if you give a class pay what you can, you're going to get everybody to pay nothing. And we have a large number of people that don't pay a dime. And I don't care. I think that's fine. It doesn't bother me. I'll meet you wherever we're at. We also have a huge number of people that pay full price because they can. And a large number of people that pay $20 or $50 or $150. And we end up like against like our better instincts. We made money teaching this class. And it's just because when we approach it, if you're poor, I don't care, right? I, I grew up poor and I remember going to a parochial school and people were constantly pushing me to like justify why I was poor. Like you'd go to school after Christmas and be like, your Christmas presents suck. 
how come Santa didn't get you an aircraft carrier for GI Joe? I don't know if you've seen those things, but they're huge. And you'd start to like have this self-doubt from a self-worth perspective because you were constantly trying to justify your existence because of your income bracket. I don't care. If you can't pay anything, that's fine. And it's weird because we have a lot of people that can't pay anything. They come in, they take the training and they get a job. And I had like one of my students, um, she went through, she took the training and she said, I got the job just because I talked about all of the different webcasts and training offerings that you offer. And I literally have a job as a SOC analyst now. And I want to say thank you. And that's all I'm asking for at the end of the day. And I think the people in the community, you know, we don't have to be a community that is owned by the VC funding firms. We don't have to be a company, a community that is completely owned by who puts on the biggest party at RSA and at Black Hat and at Gartner. Um, we don't. Like the best of this community, if you go back all the way back to the 90s, and I know you've been around for a while, Tom, right? If you go back to the way this community was before it was a multi-billion dollar industry, it, it was a very dysfunctional family, right? Like we had problems. There was real issues with the way that we treated each other. But the best quality in the security community were the people that were always there to help each other out. And sometimes I feel like we lose that. And like, you look at your, you look at your podcast, you look at what you do with Trace Labs, your mission statement is basically helping people out. You're not asking for money. You're not trying to get reimbursed. You're not trying to get acquired or get series A or B funding. You're just trying to do the right thing. And we have found at BHIS that if we do the right thing by offering this training, pay what you can, like the rewards are far greater. And, and I know that that's kind of a long soliloquy, you know, talking about this stuff, but it's something that I'm, I'm seeing in the community, something that I haven't seen in a long time, where we have this huge swell of people that are now entering, they, the gate is down and they're basically attacking it with vigor and they're getting jobs in the community and they're kicking ass in the community. And the only thing they ever needed was a chance. Well said. I can't even summarize that. <laughs> that was great, John. <laughs> Thanks. Um, no, um, my my big takeaways from that was just because you're giving something away for free doesn't mean it's not going to benefit you later on in some way. So like giving, oh, so cost should never be a hindrance to giving or perception of cost. Um at the same time, you know, I think that reward should not be the motivation for giving either. And I just think it's in the spirit of the hacker community to help each other and to just try to give back in any way that you can. So I guess I can't think of anything more hackery than teaching people for free. Well, and honestly. I think it's kind of cool now, right? Like what you guys are doing with your CTFs and your presentations in this podcast there's a whole bunch, like you talked about the spectrum of podcasts and there's so many people out there that are helping out each other. But I, you know, I will caution everybody, please understand that this hacker community, it sucked for a long time, right? You had gatekeepers who were like, you know, if you didn't know how to write things in assembly or if you didn't know how to write an exploit for Java, you weren't cool. It was a whole bunch of wizards trying to impress other wizards. And those people were a-holes. And like I keep saying, don't party with those people. Like if you have somebody that's like, well, you know, I don't like hanging out with noobs, F that person. You don't want to deal with that person. They're toxic. Get away from them. And a lot of people don't know this in the industry, but 
there was a large number of us at ShmooCon a long, 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 long time ago that we saw the toxicity in the community. And a number of us got together and we realized in our spheres of influence that we had the ability to influence different sectors of the community. And if there was somebody that was starting to get out of line, one of us had a direct connection to try and deal with that and try to turn it to something positive. And I believe that we made an impact. Um, there were people that would start fighting and start Twitter turf wars and tweets gonna tweet, yo. Um, but I think that we tried to shut as much of that down as we could. And I worry that people that are coming in new will gravitate towards that, that bravado. They'll gravitate towards the put down culture. They'll gravitate towards you know this, this, this egregious self-promotion at the detriment to everyone around them. And we need to constantly be on the lookout for that. And if you have anybody that rips on somebody else in the community, even if it's somewhat justified, even if they're going after it, we, we need to push back, right? Because we can be better. And I, I'd like to try to focus on what are the good aspects of the hacker community and not the bad aspects. Because I've worked with security engineers that they don't know how to write an exploit, but they can do OSINT and they can terrify you what they can find about an organization. Does that mean that they're less of a security professional because they don't know how to write an O-Day? It's just different, different career paths, different things. And we need to respect that as much as we can in the industry. Just looking at it, just from a security point of view, um, I guarantee you fancy bears getting along just fine. They're all, you know, <laughs> they're all, they're all yeah. working together with, with like no drama, you know, North Korea, you know, they're probably pretty tight. Um, your, your yeah. adversaries don't have drama. They just have a mission. So the, yep. the P the people that are coming after your organization only have one thing in mind and that's completing their mission. So yep. We as a community or we as defenders probably need to behave in the same way or we're going to get the result that we've gotten in the past. Well, and, 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 and it goes back to the idea of gates, right? The more we have gates, whether those gates are just people being a-holes or cost gates associated with entering in security, the fewer people we're going to have enter. And, and that's really unfortunate because of the finances associated with it. But it's also really unfortunate because we're locking ourselves out to some really awesome people. And the more we can open this up, the more that we can get people in, the more that we can kind of develop this positive infrastructure of the community as a whole, it, our systems are gonna be more secure. Our lights are gonna stay on. And, you know, those attackers aren't going to get their mission, but the more that we gatekeep knowledge, the, the more we're gonna have these massive outbreaks just because the people that need the training won't get the training that they so desperately need to be successful. So we talked earlier about OSINT, specifically kind of third rail OSINT, or, you know, just you know, pieces of information that you probably wouldn't want to have in a report. Do you personally, just as as a pen tester, have like a, like an OSINT workflow, like a place you start, a place you're, you are in the middle, a place you are in the end? Um, that, that might be a bit technical, but like in general, like, oh, hey, you know, no. before pen test, you know, I you know, always collect these four pieces of information during a pen test. I like to use OSINT in this way. And then kind of at the very end, I might use it as a follow-up. Is there kind of a, a flow or a system there? Or does it really just depend on the engagement? So there is a flow in a system, right? And it, it kind of boils down to a methodology. So it, it depends on what the customer actually gives you to start, right? 
So usually at a bare minimum, you're going to get a domain that you can go after. So you'll start with that domain and then you'll basically start trying to uh, just plug in some very, very basic things around that domain. Like what are the IP addresses associated with that domain? Um, I mentioned ASNs um, using the net modifier on Shodan to try to see if there's additional IP addresses around that domain. And then you would move into some DNS recon, right? So you basically do some DNS reverse lookups. Once you have the IP addresses that are associated with that domain that are visible, now you can start doing reverse lookups on other IP addresses, and that'll enumerate additional hosts in that specific area. So those are two of the main things that you would actually start with, right? And I, you know, I was going to say who is, but you know, with GDPR it, and privacy directives out of Europe, who is information is a little bit less awesome than it was. So then you can take that information, and you can start looking at what are the different things that we're getting from web servers and maybe look at the TLS SSL certificates and then start doing a lookup on the organizations to see if you can identify other organizations or other systems that are using those exact same certificates that have been fingerprinted by sources. So now you've got a pretty good technical footprint as far as IPs and ranges. And by the way, I haven't done anything with like a port scanner, right? You know, this is all stuff that you can get from census. You can get it from Shodan, a number of different websites. So once you kind of have that, um, then I really like to kind of move into some really stupid Google dork style attacks. Like one of the most powerful things whenever you're doing recon is minus in Google, right? So you can do site colon, put in the target organization. And if you've got a bunch of WWWs, you basically now do minus WWW. Then you find mail, you do minus mail, and then you have files, and then you do minus files. And you start getting into these really weird, obscure services in the organization. And you're basically trying to get that Google search down to where there's nothing. And there's tools that'll automatically do that for you. I like to do it manually. And, and I know that that's dumb, but I want to explain why. So a lot of times whenever a tool gives you an output and you got a hundred you know, hosts associated with the domain, our eyes kind of glass over and we tend not to look at it through the same eyes you would if you were actually getting your hands dirty. Um, so you're far more likely to actually click some of those links and actually dive into some of those pages. And that becomes important. Once you kind of have that technology footprint as kind of a basic level of what you're going to do, now you want to start attaching people to it, right? And um, you can use Multego and you can do things like enumerating the email addresses. Um, you know, I, I talked about, um, um, you know, you can use things like Spiderfoot, you can use ReconNG. There's a number of different tools that you can use to enumerate email addresses. And it's hard to do with Google directly. There's some tricks where you can might be able to pull up some email addresses, but switching over to Bing or Yahoo or Baidu, there's other searches that may be excluded from Google that actually show up in other search engines. So it's really important when you're doing Google dorking because I'm old and that's what we called it back in the day to be able to use those techniques across multiple search engines because they're inherently going to find different results. After you've pulled up a couple of email addresses, then it's really, really fun to take those email addresses, learn how they're formatted, and then try to find other names to people. Like maybe you'll start doing some things with LinkedIn um, to try to enumerate as many users as possible and then taking those usernames and converting it into the actual format for the organization. And at that point, it starts to get a little wishy-washy, right? Like those things are kind of like some of the base table stakes of what you would actually do and there's a number of sites that'll assist you in actually doing that. 
But once you have that basic foundation, now you have all kinds of places that you can go off, right? Um, like you can basically, let's say just with email addresses, you can start filtering those email addresses through have I been pwned. And you can see, have any of these email addresses been associated with any data dumps? Can I pull that data dump, get clear text passwords or password hashes? Um, sometimes not even using things like have I been pwned, you can go straight to like GitHub and just do a search because there's people that post breaches from third party websites um, there just to basically store it. So I think that there's some fundamental and basic things and any book that covers OSINT, um, I know Georgia has an amazing pen testing book and I think she came out with the updated version of it recently, but those will get you those basics and fundamentals. But from that point on, it's all curiosity, right? Like if you're gonna find an email address that's interesting to you, you're gonna find this person on LinkedIn. What are they into? Does it actually bring up their Twitter account? Are they doing geotagging um, with images that they share online? You know, you start basically just kind of doing this free, flow, free flowing approach to trying to take the data that you have and really doing some additional digging and research. And that's really where this becomes like a drug. But I will tell you as awesome as automated, automatic frameworks are, <clears throat> it makes it a lot easier for many testers to get into a habit of skipping over things that maybe would have been interesting. So I like when you're doing OSINT, the best thing you can do is try to keep your hands as dirty as possible into it. Because OSINT is one of those things that everyone always talks about. We can automate this, we can automate this, and you can. But by and large with anything in the community, the more you automate something, the more you standardize that thing. The more you standardize that thing, the more you actually just make it super mediocre. So it requires you to actually get your hands dirty and dig into the data that you're being shown. So just to kind of recap, just if nothing for my own selfish curiosity, which is the advantage of being a podcast host, I guess. Yep. You, whenever you're starting out, you're just trying to get as much of a sketch of a footprint as possible from totally passive sources. Like, you know, mm -hmm. you you'd mentioned no port scans, you know, so you're not using Nmap. You're just seeing what's out there in the, in the records show, you know, yep. what's, you know, you know, what does Shodan saying, you know, what are the DNS yep. records saying? Um, and then from there kind of looking at, you know, how are they structured? You know, www. Okay. FTP. Okay. Ooh, secret.company.com. That sounds cool. Oh, my favorite was uh certs.company.com and they had the full portal for some reason, no authentication where you could access all of their TLS SSL certificates. Like they had this certificate management interface, no authentication. And I was talking to the customer during the scoping call. And I remember I'm like, oh, before we pen test you, you should really fix this. Like, you know, that happens all the time. So. <laughs> before you pay us, here's some free advice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that one's on me. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, just just sketching out, you know, as, as broad a picture of the technical piece of the organization as possible, and then diving into the people piece, you know, how mm -hmm. are their, how are their emails structured? Is it first name dot last name? Okay, let's try CEO at company.com and just see what pops up. Um, and then I like how you, you mentioned from there though, it's an art, it's a curiosity, it's, it's you using your own judgment and your own experience to see kind of what rabbit hole that you want to dive down. So I think that's an interesting blend of 
playbook and also intuition. And here's here's a weird number to play with, right? So this is completely unofficial. It's completely anecdotal. But it seems like whenever an organization gets to be about 11 to 1,200 IP addresses, um, it quickly approaches 100% probability that there's something that you can take advantage of to gain access. Um, it could be a web server that is uh, sharing out the logs directory and those logs are being indexed and you can actually pull down the logs directly. So you can find things like user IDs and passwords. It could be missing patches on something. It could be a misconfiguration. It could be a telnet server um, that it has no authentication whatsoever. And it seems like once an organization gets to be about that size, there's almost always something uh, indexable directories where you can browse the directories on a web server, pull down backup files and things like that. And I kind of would encourage your listeners, like when you're dealing with those large organizations as part of an assessment, always go into it with a larger scale organization that there's something there that if you do enough OSINT, you're going to find something. Now it may not be getting root on a server, but you're going to find something interesting and you've got to constantly kind of push that envelope because there is an inflection point. Once organizations get large enough and they get old enough, there's so much legacy tech and tech debt floating around. And you can find that through OSINT. And we suffer this even at BHIS, right? Like you get like a weak engagement. It's a large scale engagement. And it seems like we always kind of cut OSINT out. Like, oh, we're just going to run a handful of tools, look at the output, and then we're going to move on to a vulnerability scan. If you're doing a, a scan pen test or just a vulnerability assessment, we tend to just kind of compress OSINT as much as we as much as we want to to get at that time. And I would encourage everyone, that's a trap. I've fallen for it. My company has fallen for it, but constantly be pushing against that and don't try to compress the OSINT because there's almost always something beautiful there. I think that that kind of in the trenches, getting your hands dirty OSINT isn't nearly as sexy as, oh, look at, you know, I found this one vulnerability on this one server you forgot that you set up back in the 90s and just, you know, it's just the greatest own ever. Um, like those are probably really yeah, fun that, to put into a report, but like probably not yeah. as frequent as, hey, I just kept digging, you know, into your naming structure and I found certs.company.com. Right, but but it is neat, right? So this gets into kind of like the wizard thing. Um, I've had tests where you have one tester who's like, I found this memory leak that you could access remotely on this particular Tanberg uh, video server. And I was able to, you know, basically read memory off of it directly by sending a malformed packet. And I did that 5,000 times and I was able to send that memory dump through strings. And I found out by doing strings with Unicode strings, I was able to pull the password out of it. And you're like, great, what was the password? And they're like, it was password. Um, so... You know, it's like, okay. And then there's the other things. Like I was able to break into this organization because one of their lead administrators had a third-party data breach and they're reusing the exact same password. And I got in and it took me five minutes, right? Now you can spend lots of time with those really technical things, which are really cool. And you'll get into those things, right? But dang it, you gotta be looking at those basic level, just stupid mistakes that OSINT pulls up because odds are, they're going to get hacked through the stupid mistake. They're not going to get hacked through some weird memory leak. Uh, uh, you know, it's like, well, we found that they're running servers that are vulnerable to Spectre and Meltdown. It's like, okay. Or they have a backup file 
on a web server that has all the passwords for all their web infrastructure, their API keys. So which of these is easier to find and what is an attacker most likely going to find? We got to constantly be kind of level setting that. No, I'm just going to say this. You know, what we've been talking about, you know, talking about education, keep fighting the good fight. And I don't care what level you are in this industry. Um, if you're like, I have nothing to contribute, contribute. Even if it's a stupid blog post on how to use Nmap switches, if it's a blog post on Google dorking techniques, constantly be giving back because out of all the things that I've ever done, if I've done anything like super advanced, I get like maybe 200 people that are interested in that. But if I go to the basics, the fundamentals, I get thousands. And that's because there's so many people trying to get the basics and fundamentals. And they may get that from Hack the Box. They may get that from the InfoSec Mentor. They may get that from a number of different places. They might get it from you. So get out there, get out as many places you can and just start giving back to the community and the community will treat you very well. I could not have said it better myself, although I may in the future and claim it was me, John. So if you hear Go this amazing, it. oh man, did you hear what Tom at Trace Lab said? Go oh, for it. Oh, he, he got me. The, the, only thing that, <laughs> the only thing that pisses me off is whenever I have people that are like, so I had a guy that I had this with another SANS instructor that was a junior SANS instructor that was coming up the ranks. Um, I think he was in community and he was reusing the exact same stories that I did. So he's just telling my stories verbatim. And I was like, okay, that's crossing the line. Uh, you know, you, should, you shouldn't do that. But other than that, everything else is free, take it. Very nice. And the thing I hope that our listeners take away from our conversation is that this was the first episode where we've ever gotten into like the pen testing side of OSINT, the security side of OSINT. And I really hope that people understand that OSINT is OSINT. Like the technique mm. is the technique. And if you if you love the curiosity and the investigation and the thinking on your feet nature of people OSINT, of a Trace Lab CTF, you're gonna like this OSINT too. You, mm -hmm. you made a great point. You don't have to come into it knowing the technology you should to advance and you, sh you should have a desire to but the technique is the technique and that that thing that you love about people OSINT would probably apply to other kinds of investigations as well awesome well very good john i really appreciate your time today i look forward to our next conversation you bet thank you so much have a great one talk to you all later this has been another episode of breadcrumbs if you'd like to learn more, you can find us online at tracelabs.org, on Twitter, at tracelabs. But if you really want to find us, just follow the breadcrumbs. <laughs> <laughs>